0: This is an overrated Christmas stocking filler from Vince, Neil and Jeremy. Enjoy. It became a tradition that when we reached the Beatles song section of each episode of the Overrated Podcast, that I would read aloud from the relevant passage from Revolution in the Head, uh, the Beatles music and the 60s by the brilliant Ian MacDonald, a sort of seminal guide to the Beatles songs. Um, and I had no idea why I started doing that. And I had no idea that people really quite liked it and missed it when I stopped doing it when I mislaid my copy of the book somewhere in my dusty house of books. So I've, um, been gifted a new copy by Santa Jeremy. Um, and as uh, a special Christmas treat, I thought I would read aloud all the missing entries okay this is the last and the longest uh, of the missing revolution in the head entries and it's for a day in the life so uh strap in this is going to be epic we won't go through the list of personnel involved there's just too many but we will say it was recorded on the 19th the 20th of January and the 3rd of February 1967 and again on the 10th of February uh, 27th of February um, in Abbey Road 2 With Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane in the can, the Beatles were confident that their reply to the Beach Boys' pet sounds was well underway. Capital, though, needed a new single, and the tracks were accordingly requisitioned for a double A-side in February 1967. Since UK chart protocol in the 60s was that anything issued as a single could not be included on an LP released in the same year, the group submitted to this with ill grace. Apart from putting them back to square one with a new album, the decision killed the informal concept of an LP drawing inspiration from their Liverpool childhoods. Fortunately, they were at the peak of their creative powers, and only two days after finishing Penny Lane, they were back in Abbey Road, working on their finest single achievement, a day in the life. More nonsense has been written about this recording than anything else The the Beatles produced. It has been described as a sober return to the real world after the drunken fantasy of Pepperland, as a conceptual statement about the structure of the pop album, or the artifice of the studio, or the falsity of recorded performance, as an evocation of a bad trip, as a pop wasteland, uh, that's the uh, T.S. Eliot poem, even as a morbid celebration of death, most of this misinterpretation stems from the ignorance of the fact that, apart from the relatively trivial When I'm 64, A Day in the Life was the first track began for the Sgt. Pepper project. At this stage, the Beatles had little idea what the new LP was going to be about, if anything. And so conceived on his own terms, A Day in the Life fell into place at the end of the finished work four months later, with all the naturalness that could hardly have been apparent at the time it was recorded. Still less likely is that the Beatles would have set upon constructing an album to be subverted or commented upon by a piece of music unlike anything they'd ever done before, not least in being two minutes longer than the longest track in their discography to date. Far from a purpose-built grand finale to a master plan, it was merely a further speculative episode in the parallel development of its authors. If anything predetermined a day in the life, it was LSD. A song about perception, a subject central both to late period Beatles and the countercultural at large, a subject, uh, a day in the life concerned reality only to the extent that this had been revealed by LSD to be largely in the eye of the beholder. A scepticism about appearances had figured in some of the songs for Rubber Soul, later coming to the fore in Rain, And Your Bird Can Sing, and Tomorrow Never Knows. Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane are further links in a chain of songs about perception and reality, of which a day in the life is an explicit culmination. A song not of disillusionment with life itself, but of disenchantment with the limits of mundane perception. A day in the life depicts the real world as an unenlightened construct that reduces, depresses and ultimately destroys. In the first verse, based like the last on a report in the Daily Mail for the 17th of January 1967, John Lennon refers to the death of Tara Brown a young millionaire friend of the Beatles and other leading English groups. On the 18th of December 1966, Brown, an enthusiast of the London counterculture and, like all its members, a user of mind-expanding drugs, drove his light blue Lotus Elan at high speed through red lights in South Kensington, smashing into a parked minivan and killing himself. Whether or not he was tripping at the time is unknown, though Lennon clearly thought so. Reading the report of the coroner's verdict, he recorded it in the opening verses of A Day in the Life, taking the detached view of the onlooker whose only interest was in the dead man's celebrity. Thus travestied as a spectacle, Brown's tragedy became meaningless and the weary sadness of the music which Lennon found for his lyric displays a distance that veers from the dispassionate to the unfeeling. On the next page in the same newspaper, he found an item whose absurdity perfectly complemented the Tara Brown story. There are 4,000 holes in the road in Blackburn, Lancashire, or one twenty-sixth of a hole per person, according to a council survey. This, intensified by a surreal reference to the circular Victorian concert venue at the Albert Hall, also in South Kensington, became the last verse. In between, Lennon inserted a verse in which his jaded spectator looks on as the English army wins the war. Prompted by his part in the film How I Won the War Three Months Earlier, This may have been a veiled allusion to Vietnam, which, although a real issue to Lenin, would have overheated the song if stated directly. At one level, a day in the life concerns the alienating effect of the media. On another, it looks beyond what the situation is called the Society of the Spectacle, to the poetic consciousness evoked by the anarchic war slogans of May 1968 in Paris, example Beneath the pavement, the beach. Hence the sighing tragedy of the verses is redeemed by the line, I'd love to turn you on, which becomes the focus of the song. The message is that life is a dream, and we have the power, as dreamers, to make it beautiful. In this perspective, the two rising orchestral glissandi may be seen as symbolising simultaneously the moment of awakening from sleep and a spiritual ascent from fragmentation to wholeness achieved in the resolving E major chord. How the group themselves pictured these passages is unclear, though Lennon seems to have had something cosmic in mind requesting from George Martin a sound like the end of the world, and later describing it as a bit of 2001. All that is certain is that the final chord was not, as many have since claimed, meant as an ironic gesture of banality or defeat. It was originally conceived and recorded Beach Boy style as a hummed vocal chord. In early 1967, deflation was the last thing on the Beatles' mind, or anyone else's, with the exception of Frank Zappa and Lou Reed. Though clouded with sorrow and sarcasm, a day in the life is as much an expression of the mystic psychedelic optimism as the rest of *Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The fact that it achieves its transcendent goal via a potentially disillusioning confrontation with the real world is precisely... What makes it so moving? The Beatles began recording A Day in the Life two days after Lennon was inspired to write its verses. In the intervening period, McCartney added a double-time middle section, a fragment of a number about his school days which, in its new context, became a vignette of a vacantly busy life of routine. The smoke was originally a woodbine, but as McCartney and Lennon agreed, Bugger this, we're going to write a real turn-on song. At this stage, the composition was so new that they hadn't had time to work out how to join Lennon's section to McCartney's and so had to record the basic track, leaving two arbitrary gaps of 24 bars counted in by road manager Mal Evans, whose reverbed voice remains on the finished recording. The recording was subsequently built up over the next three weeks, Lennon and McCartney redoing their vocals, McCartney and Starr replacing their bass and drum parts until the desired effect was obtained. For the final overdubs, a party was thrown in Studio One on Friday the 10th of uh, February. Much had been done on the 1st of June 1968 for Yellow Submarine, except that this time an orchestra was involved. McCartney who had listened to music by John Cage and Luciano Berio and heard performances by AMM uh, at the Royal College of Art decided that the 24 bar bridges would be filled by a symphony orchestra going from its lowest to its highest note in an unsynchronized slide a freakout or oral happening Charged with realising this, George Martin halved the numbers of players and scored the glissando individually to ensure the right random effect. Rather than a chaotic tone cluster, each player was asked to finish on whichever note in the E major triad was nearest the highest on his instrument. A second four-track tape machine was slaved to the one running the Beatles' own stereo track, the first time this had ever been tried in a British studio and each orchestral glissando was recorded in mono four times before being mixed back to the master as a single monstrous noise, presumably remixed without ADT to take up the spare track. At the end of a festive evening, those in the studio spontaneously applauded the results. The final chord, played by Lennon, McCartney, Starr, Evans and Martin on three pianos, and tracked four times, was recorded separately 12 days later. Made in a total of around 34 hours, a day in the life represents the peak of the Beatles achievement. With one of their most controlled and convincing lyrics, its musical expression is breathtaking, its structure at once utterly original and completely natural. The performance is likewise outstanding. Lennon's floating, tape-echoed vocal contrasts ideally with McCartney's dry briskness. Starr's drums hold the track together, beginning in idiosyncratic dialogue with Lennon on slack-tuned tom-toms. McCartney's contributions on piano, and particularly bass, brim with invention colouring the music and occasionally providing the main focus. A brilliant production by Martin's team, working under restrictions which would floor most of today's studios, completes a piece which remains among the most penetrating and innovative artistic reflections of its era.